Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU Extension's Stay Happy, Stay Healthy campaign. The pandemic has caused confusion and uncertainty, and it is easy to become anxious and skeptical. A positive attitude can help in times of stress. Tips available at stayhappystayhealthy.usu.edu. Support also comes from utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of organizations is hosting a national virtual event on the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to commemorate the survivors of nuclear weapons and production. The event is called Still Hair, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy, and will include highlights from local events, stories from survivors, and look toward a future free from nuclear threats. Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon, a longtime advocate for downwinders and the playwright of the play Exposed, will be a featured speaker. Our guest for the hour today is Mary Dixon. I ask everybody I have on these days how how you're doing with the pandemic. What what what, what changes oh do you God. make with the pandemic? Okay, it's getting very it's getting very tiresome very fast. <laughs> it's like you know if I can be outside I'm fine, but since it's been so hot lately, I. I've just been lying under my swamp cooler. <laughs> That's, it makes yeah. me very lazy. Yeah, that, yeah. that sounds familiar to me as well. Well, and because of the pandemic, uh, I assume the the conference we're talking about probably would have been in person, but uh, but but it's a right. uh, but it's electronic. Yeah, they, it's it's all virtual. They've been working on it for a long time. They they've been coordinating 163 groups around the country and trying to set everything up, and they had to do a virtual because of, of course, the pandemic. You can't be in person, so it's all virtual. Um, I actually pre-recorded my bit because I didn't want to run into any technical difficulties the day of. They're on a really tight schedule, so uh, it, it will be virtual, which means more people will get to see it, which that's on the plus side. Yeah, that's that's is the upside, and I've heard that from other event organizers that 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 is the advantage of more people probably uh, participate. Uh, so that this uh, the hashtag is still here, right? Seventy five years of right. shared nuclear legacy of, of shared nuclear legacy, right? Right. And so this seventy fifth anniversary um, to uh, today, uh, Thursday of uh, Hiroshima, right? And then on Sunday it's the seventy fifth right. anniversary and then of Nagasaki. On Sunday the ninth, it's the anniversary of Nagasaki. Right, right. It's hard to believe it's been seventy five years. And I, I guess one of the highlights of this conference, one of the things they're trying to impress on people, is that we are still here. Survivors are still here. Nuclear weapons are still here. Um, so there's there's still much work to be done as far as containing the nuclear threat. Uh, and so we'll get into this as we as we go along. Uh, but there's uh, the Trump administration has proposed, um, you know, ramping up nuclear testing. So it is this yes. very very timely yes. topic, unfortunately. Uh, so I want to uh, you you did a recent op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, right. It was, it was titled "Let There Be No More." Hibakusha. Uh, is how you pronounce it. What, what's, what, yeah. what, what are Hibakusha? Let, let me explain that. Um, I'll just start with saying that, like, 15 years ago, I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
um, and some other Japanese cities with American University's Nuclear Studies Institute. Uh, it was the 60th anniversary commemoration, which was huge in Hiroshima, but I spoke at a university in Kyoto, Ritsumeikan, um, and a woman was there who named Coco. She came up to me afterwards, and, you know, she had been an infant when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and had survived. She is featured in John Hersey's book of the same name, but she came up to me in tears and told me that I was an American Habakasha, and that's the Japanese word for survivors of the bomb. And it was interesting that she called me that, and here was this woman who had such sympathy for me and my story. Um, but I am, I guess, a Habakasha because I survived the atomic bombs that were exploded here in America by our own government during the Cold War, all in the guise of protecting us. They exploded 935 nuclear bombs at the Nevada test site. All of them were powerful than the ones that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all during those years of testing, I don't know if um, a lot of your viewers may remember this, they would tell us there is no danger. They even printed up a little booklet telling us that we shouldn't be bothered by reports of Geiger counters going crazy and that we were active participants in this nation's program of nuclear testing. Um, they covered up and denied and minimized the danger from that radioactive fallout for decades, for decades. And so, of course, a lot of us here in America <clears throat> just grew up thinking that, uh, like the old Mormon hymn would tell us, all is well, all is well, you know, if we were safe. So we really had no way of knowing that the radioactive debris in those towering mushroom clouds could devastate families across this country. And, you know, Utah was especially hard hit. There, There's a map, Lee, that Richard Miller has in his book, Under the Cloud, The Decades of Nuclear Fallout. And that map shows where fallout went when it was picked up by the jet stream. That's how it got carried all the way across America. And, and I carry that map around to show people wherever I go, because if you look at that map, that is the most shocking thing you could show people to drive home the point that it wasn't just St. George, it wasn't just Southern Utah, it was the whole country, and definitely it was all of Utah. On his map, Utah's pretty much totally blacked out, but you see that ink spreading all the way across the Midwest, which is where a lot of our food was grown. You see it all the way in upstate New York and into Canada. So when you look at where fallout was carried across this country and how it rained out or snowed out on communities underneath, we have no idea how many downwinders there might be. Um, we know there are a lot. There was a study that came out in 2019 in um, a Journal of Economic History. It was a researcher from the University of Arizona. And he concluded that probably 500,000 Americans had died, mostly in the Midwest and the East, as a result of contaminated, fallout-contaminated agriculture. Um, so when you start looking at, at the story, it's so much bigger than most people realize. Uh, it's so much more widespread than most people ever understood. Uh, and, and that's kind of been a lot of my work all these years 
is to let people know that, no, this wasn't just something that hit southern Utah. Uh, in fact, uh, your story, you, you grew up in Salt Lake, I think, right? Right. I grew up in Salt Lake um, on, the can- on the rim of Cam- uh, Parley's Canyon. And I remember after I got thyroid cancer, um, and that was when I, that was in 85, I started keeping a list of all the people in this five-block area neighborhood I grew up in on the canyon rim, and the numbers of people who had cancers and tumors and and other fallout-related illnesses, and that was soon at 54 people, and that's in five blocks. So we were definitely a cluster. Um, proving it gets to be pretty tricky business, but... We do have some studies out there. There was uh, the National Cancer Institute did a study in 1997. It was a huge, many-paged, long study where they basically said that every county in the continental U.S. got some level of fallout from testing in Nevada. That's the entire continental U.S. Um, And they were only looking at one radioisotope which is the iodine-131 that causes thyroid cancer, and that's just one of the fallout-related cancers. But that study also said that um, 212,000 lifetime cases of thyroid cancer disease could be linked to fallout. That's, That's a lot. So when you look at those studies and those numbers, and again, these are things not a whole lot of people know, but... Uh, you can go online and look up that Cancer Institute study, and they even have mapped the U.S. and color-coded it by how much fallout different areas got. And again, Utah, all of Utah, that's northern Utah, too. That's Salt Lake. That's Logan. We all we all got it. Sometimes we got more than some of the counties in the southern part of the state. Uh, that's amazing. And, and, and you, I, I think it is true. Uh, this is not all that well known. I think still in popular conception, downwinders, they're all southern Utah, maybe Nevada. Right, know. right, right. I, I can't tell you how many times when um, I'll, people, I'll tell people in the downwinder and they'll go, oh, I didn't know you grew up in St. George. And that's when I pull out the map. I say, no, no, no. I grew up in Salt Lake, but we got as much sometimes as southern Utah. Um, yeah, there are other studies there was, Uh, a director of radiological health at the University of Utah, and there was even one above, it was an um, an underground test, because some of those leaked and spewed these huge mushroom clouds into the sky and got picked up by the jet streams. But that one test, it was called Bainberry, that one rained out pretty hard over, um, like, Brigham City and Logan and Salt Lake, and that one, the researcher said that 55,000 kids would likely develop some sort of thyroid issues from that test. Um, his, his research, sometimes they didn't want to bring that out. And in fact, when he tried to warn and say, you've got to tell people not to drink the milk, they just lowered, the government lowered the acceptable level of radiation in milk. And by the time they pulled it, it was eight days later, which didn't do any good because the half-life of I-131 is about eight days. Mm. So, again, there was just a systematic program of covering up. Um, in fact, I, I have these Atomic Energy Commission minutes from the 50s when testing was first starting. They make for 
very dramatic reading, by the way, that there was one point where one of the commissioners said, um, you know, we're starting to hear reports of livestock and people dying, and the other commissioner said nothing is going to get in the way of testing, nothing. Mm. And then he proposed that what they needed was a, quote, judicious handling of public information, which, again, is basically propaganda. So that's where you got the there is no danger and the little booklets and films they made. I mean, who doesn't remember Duck and Cover? Do you remember those? I do, I do, Where, um, yeah, yep. Bert the Turtle, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Duck yep. and Cover, Duck and Cover, yeah. Uh, so as, that's been... As oh, if as if that's going to protect you. That, you know, I, oh, I, no, I know. Even as, I a, know. even as a kid, I wondered about that. Yeah. Getting under my desk, is that oh, gonna, really going to help me, right? I know, I did too. I thought, wait a minute, putting a newspaper over my head or getting under my desk? I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a much more trusting and naive time, to be really honest about it all. It was it was a different time, and we believed authority in those days. We, You know, if they told us something was safe, we said, oh, oh well, I guess I'm okay. And this... But yeah, uh, there, there are... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay, no. now there are cases. There was one test in um, 1953, and they named them all. This one was named Simon, and it got picked up by the jet stream, and it collided with the worst thunderstorm in 100 years over upstate New York, rained out all over Troy, Albany, and Schenectady. And it was actually measured by researchers at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute who tracked it down to the test site. And they knew that that test had had done that. Well, there's a whole book that was written about that one test called A Good Day Has No Rain uh, by a journalist in Albany. And he's since written another book, a follow-up, looking at how many people developed um, Hodgkinson's lymphoma as a result of that, how an entire graduating class that he followed later died of that Mm. disease. So, I mean, there, there are health repercussions. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, this is old history. This happened a while ago because testing went on from 1951 to 1992, and it was actually George H.W. Bush who put a halt to it. So that went on for 40 years almost. And people think, oh, that's so long ago, certainly we're all okay. But, you know, this is the, the hard thing with radiation exposure. Some of those cancers take 20, 30, 40 years to show up. So if you've got that kind of lag time, that's another reason people have trouble connecting it to the testing because so many years have passed from exposure to diagnosis. And then, of course, people, like their cancers return. Um, Preston Truman, who's up in Malad, Idaho, who's done so much on this issue and knows more than probably any other downwinder, um, you know, he battled various cancers as a teen and now as a man in his 60s, he's had one of his, a cancer has returned, or a new cancer shown up. And so people are still suffering the health effects, and a lot of those health effects are lingering. Um, and then if you look at genetic damage, that can be passed on to other generations. So, and that's another point I try to make. We are still living with the effects of fallout. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon is my guest for the hour. She's a longtime advocate for downwinders. We'll have more with Mary Dixon following this break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and USU Extension's Stay Happy, Stay Healthy campaign. During this holiday season, stay connected in safe and innovative ways, like making front porch visits or sending care packages to loved ones. More tips available at stayhappystayhealthy.usu.edu. As the pandemic continues, many of us are thinking of new creative ways to stay connected during the upcoming holiday season. That's why Utah Public Radio and Cash Community Connections have put together a gathering of gratitude, a special Thanksgiving program featuring reflections and music from religious and civic organizations. This Sunday at 5 p.m., tune into UPR to join your community in hearing uplifting messages and music and expressing gratitude. Thanksgiving, like all the other holidays, my parents' house was an opportunity to gather a lot of waifs together. We'll gather together with conductor Michael Tilson Thomas for funny memories and Beethoven's Song of Thanksgiving, plus poets Rita Dove and Ted Couser, and healing sounds from Brooklyn Rider. I'm John Burge with music and stories for Thanksgiving. It's Giving Thanks from APM, American Public Media. Join us on Thanksgiving Day, 9 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A coalition of organizations is hosting a national virtual event on the 75th anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to commemorate the survivors of nuclear weapons and production. It's called Still Here, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy. Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon is a longtime advocate for downwinders. She's written a play on the subject called Exposed. Uh, She's a featured speaker at this event. She's our guest for the hour uh, right now. You mentioned Preston Truman. Uh, I was struck by a quote. You did, this is an op-ed you did in the, in the Tribune, a separate one. Um, yeah. You say, you, he used to say they're just waiting for uh, all of us to die. That oh, this, this oh is... my gosh, he did. Because, I mean, we've been fighting for the expansion of RECA forever. Um, it, and, and that's what he would always say. He'd say they're just waiting for all of us to die. And so many downwinders. I know, and I worked with on this, they've died. I mean, Michelle Thomas, who was such a spitfire in St. George, uh, she died a year ago, May. Um, a lot of the people I've worked with have died. And I remember Darlene Phillips, who's been bountiful and worked on this really hard, too. She ended up dying. And um, she told me once, she said, you have to keep working on this because the rest of us are too sick. And so I've always felt, an incredible responsibility to just keep speaking out. And it gets leased. Sometimes it's incredibly hard. There are times I just think I can't do this anymore. I can't hear any more stories because, you know, the more I talk about it, the more different downwinders will call me to talk to me and tell me their stories. And, I mean, their stories are absolutely heartbreaking. I feel like I got off easy um, with thyroid cancer. But some of them, their stories just, do me in when I hear them. I guess I'm too big an empath. So it's um, it's hard work, and it's frustrating, too, that I, I always remember what Preston said. He said, our victories are always temporary. They always have been. He goes, we've got to keep our pitchforks sharpened. And um, it's every time we think we're out of those nuclear woods, uh, somebody proposes resuming testing, and, and here's 
this administration proposing resumed testing. And one Department of Defense official said that they could be ready to do a test within months. Mm. And this is really, really troubling to me. And, and as I said in that iPad, I just find it utterly immoral. We'd even consider it knowing what we know. But I, this is what makes me really sadly. I think that a lot of our elected representatives simply do not know the, the cost of nuclear testing. They don't know the human cost. They don't know the story. They, they don't know. Um, I went once with three other women. We went back to Washington. This is when I think the Bush administration was talking about resume testing. And we took Miller's map, little cards of that map, and left them in every office. And we had one, it was Chuck Hagel, one of his people, one of his staff that we met with, who had actually been on a nuclear sub. And he said to us, you know, I know about this. He goes, I would venture most of them don't. You've, you've got to, like, tell them. You've got to leave these cards. And um, so there's, there's just this constant education that needs to be done, I think, because I really think people don't know it. And like I said, it's it's not something that's taught in American history books either. Mm. Is it, uh, what are the... I, I assume the arguments back in the day with the well. First of all, let me ask you: Was this a case, at least early on, of the government not knowing uh, what the effects would be, um, or I or was it was it lying from the beginning? Mm-hmm. They lied from the beginning. They lied from the beginning, which is so hard to reconcile. Um, back in '51, there was after one of the first tests, the film in Rochester, New York, was fogging. They tracked it back to test at the test site. Well, the test site said, and they threatened to sue, Kodak threatened to sue. And they said, well, we will give you advance warning so you can protect the film. People were never given that advance warning. We were assured everything was okay. We never got that warning. Now, they knew early on what it was doing. Um, they, they lied. They covered up. If, if you read these Atomic Energy Commission minutes, they're, they're very damning. Um, and those only were, I think, released under the Clinton administration. So they were they weren't declassified for quite a while. Was this then a conscious trade-off? This is national security. Yes, uh, yes, it was mm-hmm. all national security. It was a Cold War. We didn't want Russia to win. We had to build bigger, better bombs. And and you know, I I had students living with me from um, other countries for quite a while while they went to the university. And they knew about my work, and I dragged them to my play and everything. And they, and one of them said to me, said, I just don't understand. Why did they have to do that many tests? That's so many tests. I mean, it's kind of unfathomable that there were that many tests conducted. And I said to him, you know, that is such a good question, and it's one I've never been able to answer. Like, what didn't they know at test 926? Or what new thing did they learn that they didn't know at test 924? Um, I used to say it's just all part of the military-industrial complex, and it's like, I hate to say it, but kind of boys with toys. Let's, let's keep playing with these. Let's make a bigger boom. And I don't think there was really a defense purpose to them mm. or a deterrent purpose. I mean, we've got the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, and... Even now, with, with this administration saying they want to resume it, it's, there's really not a military purpose. There just isn't. 
Uh, and a lot of the, that's kind of the consensus among international arms control experts. There's no need for or any strategic or military value for us to develop new nuclear warheads or conduct new nuclear weapons tests. Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists just called it abhorrent that we would even consider doing this again. Mm. What uh, is, what is so the... that that makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the Trump administration saying? Uh, are 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 you know resuming tests? I imagine there's you know the the rationale is the national security perhaps, but the the question I want to ask is: uh, Is there any assurances? Uh, are you know that we can do tests safely now? Are are is there any talk oh, like that? Yeah, that's and I've heard that I've heard that one. That's what they say. Well, we can do them safely now. And you know what I say? I say anytime this government uses the word safe. With nuclear weapons, my hackles go up. I do not trust them to be able to do anything safely. I don't know if you remember back in, I think it was 2007, this divine streak where they were going to do a non-nuclear test that simulated a nuclear test, and they called it divine streak. Um, But it was going to blow up dirt that was still radioactive, and they they kept saying, well, oh, you know, it'll be no more harmful than sun. And, and But then it was almost like they were gleeful about this when they said, there will be mushroom clouds over Las Vegas again. And I thought, that's nothing to brag about. Um, that one, though, thanks to a lot of activists working against it, and thanks to, uh, I think it was ABC News here, was it Channel 2 or Channel, it was wherever Terry Wood was, was at at the time, and he did an on-air editorial as an anchor. It, it ended up getting him fired, but he told people he could not see letting this happen again and urged them to write letters and then took 11,000 letters to officials at the test site. But that test was stopped. People did stop that test. We're not quite as naive as we used to be. Um, but, you know, they'll always use some, some boogeyman. Um, you know, it was terrorism back in the Bush era and... Now it's they're saying we have to show China our strength. Uh, we have to show these other nuclear countries our strength. Well, we've got the strength, and our military experts will tell you we've, we've, we've got the deterrent. So there's really no reason for it. I think a lot of it is posturing. But when downwinders hear that that might happen again, I mean, we know what the help costs are of that. And... And for that to happen again, and, and, and one thing that is really ironic is that, all right, here we are with two bills right now. There's one in the House and one in the Senate to expand compensation for downwinders. So we're talking about creating new downwinders when we still haven't compensated the last generation of downwinders. And, and that Radiation Exposure Compensation Act uh, was always incredibly limited, and it was done that way on purpose. It was a political boundaries were drawn around this narrow little circle of of counties, mostly rural counties in southern Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And if you lived and could prove you lived in those counties during certain years and got one of 18 kinds of cancer, you were eligible for $50,000 in compensation. Well, $50,000 doesn't cover one chemo treatment. Um, and so they have, we've been trying to get that expanded. Um, Senator or Representative Lujan out of New Mexico and our Ben McAdams 
and others have signed on to the bill in the House, which would add the entire state of Utah, because now it's only counties in southern Utah. Uh, it would add all of Utah. It would add Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and New Mexico, as well as Guam. Um, and then there's a House bill that was introduced by Senator Crapo in Idaho. And same thing, um, that one would add Idaho, Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, Nevada, and all of Utah, as well as Guam. So those are right now sitting, waiting for action. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that they'll go somewhere. I know that only Ben McAdams has signed on to those bills here. Not the rest of our congressional delegation are the representatives. None of them have signed on to it. Neither of our senators have signed on to the Crapo bill. And they are both bipartisan bills. They've got quite a few co-sponsors at this point. Um, but our guys have not signed on for either of those, which which is sad. And I'm really glad to see McAdams kind of taking the lead on this. And he's also actively trying to stop the resumption of testing. And we're not hearing that from our other representatives, um, which is, to me, incredibly disappointing. I think they just don't understand how their constituents have suffered. So maybe maybe we need to send them the map. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you move that needle? It's. Uh, do you... I don't know. I don't know. I have um, met, I and others have met with um, Senator Romney's uh, staff person here, and he was, you know, when I showed him all the maps and everything, he was, I mean, frankly shocked that that's how far it went. So... I mean, I hold out hope for Senator Romney. I know Senator Lee, his father, who was the Attorney General of Utah, Rex Lee, was very instrumental in helping downwinders. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we push him from that angle. It's. I just wish that they would look at all the evidence and all the facts and listen to constituents. Because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's not a. It's not a partisan issue. That's what gets me. I mean, Republicans have always been part of stopping nuclear testing, and it's it's bipartisan. Fallout fell on Republicans and Democrats. So it's I, I don't see it as a partisan issue at all. Yeah, you, you point out George H.W. Bush halted nuclear testing in 1992. Ronald Reagan yeah. wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons. Right, right. He wanted to eliminate them. So it's, it's not a partisan thing, and I'm kind of getting the feeling that people think it is, that they think they've got to support uh, Trump and say they're for nuclear testing. I'm not sure they really know what it did. And I, and, and this is the, the um, thing, too, that I've noticed. Whenever I speak about it, and I used to speak to a lot of classes and different groups, and people would all start talking afterwards about a relative of theirs who had had cancer and one of the, you know, possible fallout-related ones. And they had no idea. I even once was speaking in St. George, and there were uh, students. And um, this one student said, gosh, my grandmother and grandfather died of cancer, and my mom had it. Do you think they might be downwinders? I'm like, are they from St. George? Yeah. I said, uh, yes, I think they could be downwinders, and they're all eligible for compensation because they lived in the right county at the right time. Hmm. Um, but, you know, so there's a whole generation even – at what was the epicenter that doesn't realize what happened. 
You're listening to Utah Public Radio, Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon. She's a longtime advocate for downwinders, and she's written a play on the subject called Exposed. Uh, she's a featured speaker at an event. Uh, it's called Still Here, 75 Years of Shared Nuclear Legacy. That's highlighting uh, highlights uh, from uh, local events, stories from survivors. We'll have more with Mary Dixon following this break. This is M. Capito, an integrative psychotherapist with ideas for becoming more resilient. Resilience is the space between what's happening and our response. Without that space, we're reduced to regrettable knee-jerk reactions. The foundation of resilience is mind-body wellness. How well do you function when you're sleep-deprived? Add in hunger, and most of us become ticking time bombs. We have three everyday opportunities to preserve this foundation. First, sleep. We often sacrifice this critical restorative period for meaningless streaming and scrolling. Willpower runs out. So choose a firm bedtime now and turn off screens and work an hour before. Second, exercise. It takes at least 30 minutes of daily exercise to detox our bodies from stress. Try walking outside for just 10 minutes after each meal and build from there. Third, nutrition. We're surrounded by quick foods packed with saturated fats and sugars that trigger dopamine and therefore cravings and fatigue. One small action now adds up. Perhaps purge your kitchen of junk, limit eating out, or start eating vegetables every day. Start where you feel inspired building up a healthy routine, and your stress resilience. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This year, Thanksgiving is going to be a little different for a lot of us, but one thing remains for sure. Our annual Turkey Confidential. It's culinary triage on Thanksgiving Day. We'll answer your cooking questions with our incredible guests, Samin Nosrat, Jacques Pepin, Mike Solomonov, and Sola Elwavi. That's Turkey Confidential on Thanksgiving Day from 8 p.m. Thanksgiving Day beginning at 10 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a national virtual event still here. 75 years of shared nuclear legacy is including highlights from local events, stories from survivors, and looking toward a future free from nuclear events. Uh, Salt Lake City writer Mary Dixon, uh, who was recognized by the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility for her lifetime work on behalf of Downwinders, uh, is our guest today. She's giving a uh, talk uh, as a part of this event. Um, and uh, we reached the last segment now of my conversation with Mary Dixon. I want to move the discussion uh, to to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You make yeah, the point, I've heard yeah. this before, that, um, uh, you know, as the nation who, the only nation so far who's who's dropped uh, nuclear bombs, uh, that, right. that, that the U.S. has a special responsibility. Yeah. yeah, I think we do have a special responsibility to to set things right. We, we have a moral obligation. I mean, we're the only ones who ever used it. And, and we used it in Japan. And then 
through the program of testing, what we did was essentially bomb our own people. Uh, so I, I really feel like we have this moral obligation to try and lead the world in stopping the nuclear threat. I, you know, we haven't been particularly good at treaties and other things, and um, I just feel like we owe it to the world. Um, it's, I mean, when you look at those cities and what happened, for me, anyway, being there, and especially at the time of commemorating this, was such an intense emotional experience. And I remember going to the, um, the museum. There's a, there's a museum in Hiroshima with remainders or of things from that were bombed. And the thing that got me, Tom, and that I just lost it seeing this was a burned bicycle. And that one really got me. And I was with the woman who had been a baby um, in Hiroshima when the bomb went off. And that woman was comforting me. I'm thinking, we're the ones who devastated your city and you're comforting me because I was just so upset going to that museum. It was really hard. And I remember going out afterwards and sitting in the Peace Park there. And you've probably seen that picture of the metal dome that's all that was left of the city. That's all that was standing. And it's kind of become this iconic symbol now. So I'm sitting in that park. I'm watching these little school children in their uniforms walk by, and I just thought, there was a day, August 6th, in 1945, when they heard a plane overhead, and they looked up, and then oblivion. And that was just so upsetting to me to watch those school children and think back on that day. It's a re- I think all Americans should have to go to that city. They should have to go to Nagasaki. Um, and that, that those people are kind and welcoming to us was, to me, a sign of true forgiveness. Because I don't know if that happened here. We'd be quite so forgiving. Mm. But just being there as part of that was intense. It was just intense. And the day of the commemoration, the children's choir is singing and at the end of the speeches, and, and I think every country was represented, but I don't, I don't know if the U.S. had a representative there, I can't remember. Um, but they released a thousand white doves. I mean, there were just so many moments being there and experiencing these commemorations that were just incredibly seared into my memory. I'll never, I'll never forget them. Uh, what are the yeah. what uh, it's uh, in political terms? What what are the Hibaksha uh, asking for? End to nuclear weapons, uh, denuclearization. You know what? What the, are yes, they? I think they're asking for that. And I remember meeting a man um, in Nagasaki, and the day before, I should back up. We had been at a museum, and again, it was very troubling. And the one picture in that museum that really got me was a picture of a little boy whose back just looked like hamburger meat because he had been burned by radiation from that bomb. And the next day we went to hear this older gentleman speak and, you know, everything had to be translated because he was speaking Japanese and he unbuttoned his shirt and showed us all the huge, um, Scarring, and you could actually see his chest beating through a really thin 
his heart beating through a thin layer of skin. He had been through countless surgeries. And then he turned around to show us his back. He was the man who was that little boy. That one got me, too. That one got me. And afterwards, I just went up to talk to him. And um, he said, just, I said, what can we do? What can we do? And he said, go back to America and tell them never to let this happen again. He goes, that's what you can do. Mm. Tell them never to let it happen again. I wonder what the response um, is. I'm sure you've heard the arguments, the Habaksha have heard the arguments uh, that defending President Truman's uh, decision to use these weapons, that it yeah. shortened the war, saved many lives. Uh, what, what's right, the, what's right. the response? Um, you know, that's so interesting you ask that, because um, Peter Kuznick, who is the head of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University and who I was with on this visit to Japan, he talked to us at length about why it was not necessary to bomb either city, how both of those, both militarily, how what we were really doing was trying to scare the Russians that we had this powerful weapon and we could use it. Um, so his whole case, and he's written at length about it, but um, I've got some of his books, he's an amazing historian, but he's written a lot about it and says that it was mostly to scare the Russians. It wasn't to end the war. Mm. Uh, but, the- you know, a lot of people will, will argue that, and they'll say, well, you know, we saved thousands of lives by doing this, um, and we probably killed more people firebombing Tokyo. But, yeah, I don't know, war is just, a nasty, nasty thing, and getting at what's right and what's moral and what's justified, I think, is a really complicated business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but anyone who's interested in that, I would say just Google Peter Kuznick, K-U-Z-N-I-K. Okay. All right. Uh, so this website, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki seventy five dot org. Uh, there's a uh, yeah. There, there's a there's a. Uh, it's interesting. The 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 title of this page is, is resilience, and these are stories of uh, of survivors. Uh, your story is included here, um, and, and just to illustrate that this is not just Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's not just Southern Utah. Uh, there are stories from people right. from Marshall Islands. Um, there are oh, military yeah. veterans, uranium workers. Oh, yes. I tell you, that whole circle of nuclear weapons, it wasn't just the use of it. It was then um, the production of the weapons, the testing of the weapons, the um, now disposal of the weapons. There's this whole nuclear chain that all along the way there are downwinders. I mean, I've met downwinders from Hanford. I've met downwinders from India, from China, from depleted uranium, from Chernobyl. Um, I mean, you look at all the ways people have been affected by this nuclear cycle, and that's something that really strikes me because there are so many victims of nuclear weapons, um, so many. And, And some of the atomic veterans, their stories are just horrifying. I was close to um, a man from Denver who was an atomic veteran, and he had been stationed in those trenches at the test site. They wanted to see what a bomb would do to soldiers and how they'd respond, And um, which to me was just incredibly immoral. They were guinea pigs, essentially. And, you know, he now has multiple myeloma and has written some lovely books, has gone to Hiroshima 
twice or three times um, and writes about that and his book called Folding Paper Cranes. Um, but yeah, I've met lots of victims. I was back in 2015, I was invited to speak at the International Conference on Victims of Nuclear Weapons, and that was in Hiroshima. So that was my second time there. And I listened to these presenters tell all these pieces of this story, and I just thought there are so many of us, so many of us around this world. Um, it was, again, it was, it was a really hard, hard time to spend in that country because I learned so much more about just the huge extent of this. And, and one thing that I, I learned listening to all these stories is that governments always lie they always minimize the danger, and they don't take responsibility for trying to make things right to those who suffer later. Um, and those were like my three big takeaways at that conference, and it was it was some kind of hard stuff, really hard stuff. I mean, there was a gentleman from India, and he had come to talk about disposing of nuclear waste and byproducts, and he had slides of these workers who were barefoot and walking through the stuff. And, and ah, there were just so many images from that conference that just stuck with me. I, I kind of wish I'd written more about it or about it at all. Mm. It was, it was kind of um, devastating, though, to learn all these things. Uh, what, what are you going to say in your, uh, your, your, your talk, your part of this conference? Which happens um, at, well, your, your part, part happens at 3.15. Again, I mean, I just talk about being described as an American Habakkusha. I talk about my own story and, you know, how our government lied us all these years and how far the testing went and how we were considered expendable. And, um, again, my message is mostly to talk about downwinders, American downwinders from the testing. Uh, and, and that's and where I go with it. Um, one, one thing, there was um, one quote I just loved. There was a woman who wrote Half Lives and Half Truths, uh, and her name's Barbara Rose Johnson, and she always said the arms race didn't prevent nuclear war. Rather, it was a nuclear war. So it was a nuclear war that happened in several countries that bombed their own. I mean, Russia did it. China did it. Um, we did it. And, and, and one thing that kind of was striking me about all this is that here we are facing COVID, this pandemic that I think is up to 155,000 dead in America. I think that's today's number. And I, I look at that and I think, okay, well, fallout from nuclear testing likely claimed more people than that. But no one warned us. And if we wore a mask, that wouldn't have saved us. Um, and yet, People aren't outraged. I just think, again, if, if downwinders got sick or died immediately after those explosions, it would have just been considered an absolute national catastrophe. But, you know, those health effects take a while to show up. And, you know, there are people always crying, prove it, prove it, prove it. Uh, so we've, we've faced some pretty tough stuff here.
What, uh, what so, would you... That's basically what I'm talking about. Right, right, excellent. Not cheery stuff. No, no. <laughs> but uh, what if uh, if people want to get involved, what, what action would you suggest people take? You know what? I would say just educate yourself, educate yourself, and um, speak up. Like, tell other people what you learn. Um, call your representatives. Ask them where they stand on these issues. I know there's a resolution that's being likely drafted to be presented in the legislature. Um, and there's also, this, this was interesting too, our Western Governors Association, they wrote to the heads of like the Judiciary Committee and um, they said, you know, you ought to do, expand comp- or, um, compensation for downwinders. So, I mean, there, there is some movement. I just think the more we let elected officials know the story, the better. I mean, I think it was back in 2005, maybe, that some of us went up to speak to the legislature, and I passed out the maps, and I thought, oh, they're never going to go for this resolution, for passing a resolution against resume testing. They're not going to do it. But you know what? I got through talking, and they all started telling their own stories. It didn't matter where they lived, you know. There was one from Tremont who talked about all the houses on his block where they were cancers. There was one from um, southern Utah. I mean, Republican and Democrat, they were telling stories, and that resolution passed unanimously. But That was back in, I think, 2005. So it's like something you have to keep doing again and again and again because there's always a new crop of legislators and people representing us, so you just kind of have to keep them informed. It's it's hard to keep doing it over and over and still have people say, oh, did you grow up in southern Utah? Mm. Even my friends have asked me that. I didn't know you grew up in southern Utah. It's like, I didn't. I didn't. Salt Lake City. Let me show you this map. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 work that needs to be uh, done over and over again. We we'll just have a couple of minutes yeah. uh, left. Uh, I want to end with uh, what Mary Dixon's up to. You're you're retired from KUED, right? <laughs> I am. I'm retired. It's it kind of was great preparation for COVID. Um, yeah, I you know I I think okay. Well, now I really have time to work on this issue and get more involved and try and keep. Increasing public awareness, so I do that. And that play I wrote, Exposed, it's kind of, it's all about this issue. It's my story about me and my sister. My sister, by the way, died back in 2000. Um, Now I have a younger sister who has cancer. uh, So it's still, people are still getting it. Um, So getting the play, it had some meetings here in right before the lockdown, so March 10th. There was a reading, and February 24th, there was a reading here. And we had one all set to do in New York uh, on May 20th. And obviously, that one got canceled because of COVID. Hopefully, it'll happen again. Um, So just trying to get the word out however I can. I spend a lot of time doing that. And I spend time gardening. And I have, this is what's really nice, I have a whole little flock of screech owls living in my backyard. Ah. <laughs> so I go out and talk to them every day. Oh, delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. They're so cute. There are a couple of little fledglings. They're just so cute, and they let you get pretty close, and they like to stay in the same place. So 
that's my COVID entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to put on the, the play uh, once this thing settles down. And uh, good luck with everything. Yeah. Of course, we'll, we'll all be uh, Thank tuned you. in. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Okay. Well, Mary Dixon, it's been a pleasure Thank to talk to you. you. Thank you so, so much. much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I so appreciate it and everything you do. It's my conversation with Mary Dixon. Uh, she's a Salt Lake City writer, a longtime advocate for downwinders. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 11 of Debunked. Episode 11 debunks the myth, harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. There's such a moral lens that people look at those who use substances through. And so I think if we understood more how harm reduction works, if we understood more about what the substance does, then we start looking past the whole, oh, there's something morally wrong with you. One of the real core pieces of harm reduction is compassion. And I think compassion often comes from understanding and lack of fear. We don't have to like that people use drugs. We don't have to like the behavior to still have compassion and understanding and support. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode 11 of Debunked. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, the economy, agriculture, and more. Catch Climate Connections weekday mornings at 549 and 849 on Morning Edition and afternoons at 348 during All Things Considered here on Utah Public Radio.